Hello and welcome. My name is Shanna Whitaker with Saltbox Church, and we are so excited you found us and are carving out some time for King Jesus. So I invite you to put your phones down, your to-do list away, and open your hearts to receive the Word of God. Good morning, good morning, welcome. Got a little lost there, I about missed my cue. It's good worship when that happens, yeah? Love to worship the Lord Jesus. Um, I am in Acts 15 today, so take your Bible, open it, or scroll if you're scrolling. Uh, We are going to try to end um, Acts 15, and this is a, uh, it's like a heart-wrenching passage in some ways. And uh, true to my style and form, we won't shy away from something that is heart-wrenching, right? Um, So we are actually taking a look at a disagreement that's going to happen between Paul and Barnabas. And so I called today um, Resolving Anger and Dealing with Disagreement. Ah, Here we go. So um, if you were here two weeks ago, I think, I, I think we titled it, um, Who Has Bewitched You? But we were talking about Acts 15 and Galatians 2, um, and there was a huge um, sort of fight in the church, uh, the new church, over whether basically believers, new believers, Gentile believers, had to first become Jewish and then become Christian. And most of the original disciples with Jesus and most of the, the early church leaders were actually swayed. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, sort of stood on his own and, and was kind of reckless and really loud and said, no, 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 it is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. It is not through works. We are not going to make people become Jewish or jump through any hoops other than Christ and Christ alone. So I'm, I'm going to propose to you this morning that what happens next is this is is a massive disagreement between Paul and his closest um, brother, kind of his ride or die companion, if you will, Barnabas. And I'm going to propose that this disagreement is going to color and flavor every aspect of Paul's ministry from the day that it happens until the day that he's escorted home with the Lord Jesus. Okay, and. Uh, I think it's like I was trying to even filter it or go, how would I even share this? If I, if I shared vulnerably for a second from my own life, um, some of you know my story, some of you don't, but I was a 19-year-old student at a very prominent um, evangelical ministry at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, and um, a group uh, who was part of that um, organization came through, and I ended up um, spending nine or seven years um, in a cult, and I don't use that lightly, but I, I, I want, it's very important that you even hear me say that, if you've never heard me say that, because it is that um, that in many ways has colored and will color, and it's the redeemed version of what God is doing in and through me because of that, that actually impacts most of what I do and even say as a redeemed um, preacher of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? So I'm actually, I, I would liken this uh, situation that's about to happen um, in Paul's life to something that was that traumatic, um, this dispute, and I actually think it influences much of Paul's, um, the epistles that he wrote to the New Testament church because it was a point of such deep um, uh, sadness or grief in his own heart. Make sense? All right, so let's start reading. We are going to uh, read. I'm actually skipping the letter that the council wrote to the Gentile believers. If you want to go back two Sundays ago and look at or listen to um, who has bewitched you, that is that dealing with that letter. I'm going to pick up in verse um, 30 of Acts chapter 15. Here we go. 
So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. So that's going from Jerusalem to Antioch. They're taking this letter, and the letter basically says, hey, um, you are not going to be saved by becoming Jewish or, or by obeying the Mosaic law or becoming circumcised. And the only real specifications they put in there is don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols because it will break the um, relationship of Jews and Gentiles being able to eat together. That's, that's the only specification they put in there. Otherwise, it's grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. Okay, so they were sent off and they went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. So in those days, they would have showed up, the church would have all gathered around, and they would have read the letter from the apostles in Jerusalem. It would have been like a church service, just like today. They would have gathered and they would have read this thing word for word. <clears throat> Verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who uh, themselves were prophets. Now, this is a different Judas than obviously the one that was the one of Jesus' disciple um, who, who betrayed him and then committed suicide. But Judas and Silas, who were themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Uh, which, by the way, is the definition of a New Testament prophet, one who encourages and strengthens. I know that word has all sorts of things attached to it today, but that is what that is the biblical um, definition. Okay, uh, after spending some time there, um, they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. So this is Silas and Judas. Now, where are they going? Back to Jerusalem. That's right, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So we have this shift where the, the epicenter of the church is moving from Jerusalem. Um, it's really north up to, they say down, because nothing's higher than Jesus, nothing's higher than Jerusalem, so they go down to Antioch, but it's really north um, to Antioch. The epicenter of the church is moving up there, and people are coming by the drove to hear Paul and Barnabas um, preach the word. The people, are, the people are coming to Christ, being baptized, like revival is breaking out. All right, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, and this is in quotes, so Dr. Luke is writing this, and he says, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So what's he saying? If you've been here the last few uh, weeks and as we've journeyed through, um, Paul and Barnabas have just completed their first missionary journey. And so Paul is saying, hey, let's get back out to walk in the Roman roads. Let's cross the seas. Let's go visit all the churches we planted. Let's check on them. Let's encourage them. Let's preach the gospel. Let's call new people to surrender their lives to him. And let's go basically from town to town. Seems pretty logical, right? Barnabas... So you immediately, through this text, you think, okay, Barnabas agrees, but Barnabas wants to take John, also called Mark, with them. Now, let's just pause here real quick. Um, in my opinion, um, Mark was probably the one who penned um, the gospel of Mark, imagine, um, but on the firsthand account, an eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. Okay, so he probably wrote that Gospel of Mark. Um, and not only that, but if you recall a few Sundays ago when Paul and Barnabas were in a place called Pamphylia, and I proposed that Paul got sick. We know he got sick, um, but he probably got sick with malaria, and he had these searing, most likely, headaches. Um, in this moment, Paul was deathly ill, and he chose to travel some uh, several hundred miles north to get away from these low-lying marshes of Pamphylia. And in the moment of Paul's greatest weakness, does anyone remember what John Mark does? 
he bails out and he goes back to Jerusalem. And we don't know a ton about that other than that the epicenter of the Jerusalem church actually meets in John Mark's mom's house. So it feels a little like he's running home to who? Okay. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. Now, you also need to know that John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. And you know how they say, blood's thicker than... Okay, so Barnabas wants to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. What's the work? Preaching Jesus, spreading the gospel, baptizing, all, healing people, all this stuff. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement. Now, if you've got a paper Bible, circle sharp, sharp disagreement, because we're going to come back to that. I want to unpack that word for you, um, because that does not communicate in our English what it means, what Dr. Luke is saying here. Okay? It is way bigger than you think, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, these guys, I mean, like... Um, Barnabas was the one who, when Antioch was in great need, and there's like the Holy Spirit of God is breaking out on the people, revival and renewal is like beginning to spread. Um, Barnabas is the one who looked at what was happening and went, there's only one person who could handle what this place needs, and it's this guy named Saul who would later become Paul. And Barnabas went and got Paul after these 10 silent years in Tarsus. So Barnabas, in my opinion, gets full credit with bringing the apostle Paul into ministry. So the bond, and then they've been on this like first missionary journey, the bond between these two brothers is so deep, like deep brotherly love and respect. Okay. So they had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. It almost feels like slamming the door and walking out. I'm going to go get on my ship then. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I'm reading between the lines here. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas. Now, Silas, the same one who had just gone back to Jerusalem. He chose Silas, and he left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Okay, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enliven uh, this word to us. Would you use it to convict us, to change us, to form us, to fill us, and to fulfill um, the full likeness of Christ being formed within each of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so go back to this sharp disagreement. Um, verse 39. So in, in uh, Greek, um, a better, that noun actually means um, angry dispute. Okay, so these guys have an angry dispute. Now, if, you, if I took you to the um, Septuagint, and that's just a like, um, scholar word or something, uh, for the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Make sense? So I'm going to take you to a text in Deuteronomy, which would have been in the Septuagint. Um, Deuteronomy, you can just make a note or flip if you like, but it's 29, verse 28. And they use, in the Septuagint, they use the very same Greek word. So I'm trying to give context to this Greek word that is, they're translating a sharp disagreement. Are you ready? Here's how the Septuagint, or Deuteronomy 29, 28, translate it, tran translates it. In furious anger and in great wrath. Same Greek word. 
In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them to, into another land as it is now. So you have to interpret the Bible with the Bible, okay? So when I start digging into this text, I'm going, what's behind sharp disagreement? Um, you know, the NIV, that's what I'm reading, they've done their best to translate this. But I think when you begin to put context into this, even knowing um, that this would be a very warm culture. So in America, we're a cold culture. We tend to be reserved. We value being like sort of mild-mannered and more peaceable. Um, but this is a warm culture. So when there's a dispute, voices elevate very quickly. People are like loud. I mean, it's rambunctious. I mean, even now, if we go to the Middle East um, and we were at the Middle East, which is all warm cultures over there, and we pull up to a stoplight, and you choose to stay on your cell phone past the change from, green, from red to green, what do you think is going to happen? Like 85 horns. And I'm not talking about a little beep, beep, you know, the American like, beep, beep, come on, man, you know, no, no. And I'm talking like when, when this warm culture, that light turns, and you're sitting at the stoplight, if you're engrossed in conversation or daydreaming out the window or looking at your phone, whatever you're doing, every horn everywhere lays on, and they don't just lay on. They go, and they don't stop until what? You move. And then to add to that, the people around you roll down their windows and stick their heads out, and they start yelling at you in their native tongue. Okay, and like you're scared to death. You're like, oh my gosh, somebody's gonna kill me. I mean, really. Now, they don't mean that. It's just a cultural thing. It is accepted um, that when you're doing something, everybody just goes, come on, go. Okay, so it's not like, it's not a personal thing. It's just a byproduct of the culture. So back into this, Paul and Barnabas get into a sharp disagreement. Um, this is like a blazing, horrible fight. Furious anger, great wrath. Uh, the Greek, if you look at it a little bit deeper, translates like a provoking jab, almost like an uppercut to the jaw. I mean, it is like a, it is such a force that you respond even physically and emotionally, and then you are required to retaliate. I mean, that's kind of the idea here of what is being portrayed um, in the Greek. So this is a, uh, it, it, the other place in the New Testament um, that this same Greek word is used is Hebrews 10, 24. And here's how it's used there. Let us consider, and this is probably, if Hebrews wasn't written by Paul, it was certainly influenced by him. Um, but it says, let us consider how we may spur one another onward. Same Greek word, spur one another. Now think with me, back to the days of cowboys and cowgirls. And on their boots, what did they wear? Okay, so when you had an animal who was resistant, who wouldn't listen, um, who had a mind of its own, who was unbroken, they would take that spur and they would crank that spur into the side. So it's not like some tough shoulder skin or, you know, no, no, no. It's into the side, the tender spot on the side of an animal, and they would dig it into the animal, sometimes until the animal bled. Right? That's what a spur is. And we don't even, like, there's almost not a context for it. Abby was a, um, was a cowgirl at a dude ranch. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with her. And on our honeymoon, we got to go out, back out there and, like, um, hang out at this dude ranch she worked at. And they don't let you wear spurs because they don't want you to spur their animals. But, but so I'm trying to give you context. When this thing says sharp disagreement, this is no joke. These guys threw down. It's probably highly public. Now, Pause for a second. What does the church in Antioch feel? <sighs> Who are their two greatest leaders? 
Paul and Barnabas. So what is the turmoil suddenly thrust on this, the very cradle of Christianity, the most potent and powerful New Testament church, in my opinion, moving from Jerusalem, the locus of the New Testament church moves from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and then all of a sudden you have this sharp disagreement, raised voices, people are yelling, the drawing of sort of spurring of blood, if you will. There is that level of wrath and anger um, being spewed back and forth. And now my question is, not only what did the church feel, and let's pause there a second. Do you think some people left the church? I bet. Do you think people could have, a few people could have even given up on the faith? Perhaps for a season. I mean, and just sit in that a second, because we live in a day and age where people come and go you know, from churches like they, you know, they're changing their shirt or their socks. But church hurt is real. And guess what? It's always been real. And, and what's beautiful about God, the, the Yahweh God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is he chooses to use broken human beings like you and me. And he chooses and he is unafraid of the brokenness that accompanies some of what goes on in the church. Now, does he applaud it? No, we're going to talk about that. But he understands that some of that is going to happen. And what is amazing about this God is he always utilizes that type of pain and even sin. And we're going to get into it. Was this sin? What happened? Um, We're going to open that door. But he always utilizes that great degree of brokenness, not only for his glory, but also for our good and also for the good of the church. That's the beauty of this God. He is not dependent on you or I or my failure or your failure or my success or your success. No, no, no. He is so much bigger, and the kingdom of God transcends us so far that he's going to work in and through it all. So if you came in here this morning and you've got some church hurt, just go. If you need to forgive somebody this morning, just go. Lord, empower me to forgive him. You don't have to change what you think or feel. Just empower me to forgive him. It's what the church in Antioch had to do. Okay, so um, let, me, uh, let me move now into a couple scriptural themes, and I'm just going to go through these really quickly, too quick for you to probably turn and keep up with me, um, but just kind of hang on. I, there's, there's at least five scriptural themes that I see that came after this that I believe were so influenced in the Apostle Paul's writing, that, and they, they go back to this division from Barnabas. Now, let me give you a little foreshadowing here. Paul and Barnabas, uh, to our knowledge, never reconciled. I mean, never. Like, there's nothing. In fact, uh, Barnabas here sails off the pages of Scripture. We're going to open that in just a minute. But there's at least five themes that I would see in Paul's writings that I think, I would propose, emerged from his regret and the conviction of the Holy Spirit for the sinful way in which he handled the situation. Michael, are you saying Apostle Paul was in sin? Yes. Should we be surprised? Is there a day you're not? Is there a day I'm not? I mean, this is the journey. The Jesus journey is taking on the character and likeness of Christ day by day, step by step, broken decision by broken decision. Sometimes we have to ask each other's forgiveness. It's the deal. Okay, so five um, themes that I think emerge. Philippians 2 Uh, Two through four, he calls Christians to be of the same mind, to live in unity. I would propose to you that's probably out of the regret of what he didn't do here. The Holy Spirit uses these things in the life of leaders, of people, um, of Christians, and he will convict and shape and form and transform. Um, So 
take a look at it. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 2 through 4. Um, the entire book of Galatians, the theme, get this, is the ministry of reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. And I would say at the base, the Holy Spirit is probably convicting Paul of his failure and or sin related to reconciling with who? Barnabas. It's at least possible. Uh, third thing, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, in your anger, do not sin. Another translation says, in your anger, sin not, or don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I would almost, I mean, it's like, I'm almost positive. I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to look at him and say, Paul, was I right? But I'm almost positive that when he's working this out and he's penning that letter to the Ephesian church and he's saying, in your anger, sin not. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't let the the devil have a foothold in your heart. When he's writing those things, I imagine him thinking back and reflecting over this time where he so raised his voice and yelled and he spurred and he kicked and he fought and he was in this bitter disagreement with his dearly beloved Barnabas who it doesn't appear like he ever even saw again. Fourth theme, Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. I imagine that when he penned that, he was also thinking about his own failure to be gentle. And lastly, I'd propose Romans 12, verses 16 to 18. It says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends upon you. Can you control another person? No. But can you control you? Can you control your mouth? Can you take thoughts captive? Can you forgive? Can you take your bitterness and frustration and hurt and disappointment to the cross? Can you change them? Can you go ask their forgiveness? Can you write them a letter? Can you drop them a note? Can you make them a coffee cake or whatever you do? Okay. So let me make some suggestions here, and let's just continue to kind of open this or massage it out. I would suggest that both um, Paul and Barnabas were right on a few things here and then were wrong. And I'm going to use the word sinful because I think that's helpful for you and I. Um, They were sinful on ways in which they handled this. So I would say both of them were right on a few things. Both of them were wrong or sinful on a few things. Um, However, and uh, scholars like full disagree on this, and there's no clear consensus, but it looks, when I read the very end of the passage, I want to read it again, Um, verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So it looks like who's under the grace of the Lord. It appears Paul is. Now, if I, when I read this text, though, knowing Paul and knowing Barnabas, I would say in this text, Paul has the greater sin. But I would also say it's probably likely that, well, I don't know about Barnabas, and I don't know what God thought of Barnabas. I'm not God. You guys know that. Um, but, but what we definitely know is Paul was wrong, um, and yet somehow he left commended to the believers by the grace of the Lord Jesus. I mean, that is wild to me. Isn't God good? Aren't you glad that he's not waiting for you to be perfect? Aren't you? I mean, I'm so glad every Sunday that he's not waiting for me to be perfect. I just wouldn't get out of bed. I wouldn't come here. Okay. So um, so let's talk about Barnabas and Paul for just a second. So Barnabas has this enormous strength um, as an encourager. um, But as an encourager, so he sees the best in people. He's always drawing out the best. Remember, he was the one who went and got 
Paul and brought him to his ministry post. And in my opinion, Barnabas is the one who launched Paul's whole ministry. He's the human agent that launched Paul's whole ministry. So he's this encourager. He's always seeing the best. And he's like, bless you. And I love you. And let me take care of you. But the shadow side of Barnabas is that he might be, and I'm reading between the text here, but he might be an enabler. So think with me just a second. Um, it, it, to become um, holistically whole in Christ, um, to take on the character uh, of Christ, requires grace plus truth plus time. Grace plus truth plus time. How do you take on the character of Christ? Well, there's grace, there's truth, and there's time. It feels or it looks like Barnabas wants to extend grace and maybe diminish a little bit the truth, and maybe diminish a little bit the time. Now, <clears throat> let's flip to Paul. Paul has, is this, like, he's a, um, he's a reformer. He's an exhorter. His mind is, like, black and white. There is no gray area. He sees super accurately, but especially as a younger man, he's a little brittle and dogmatic in his approach. In my opinion, as I read this, he's the one who is much more fiery, much more infuriated um, than Barnabas. So let's open this up just a minute because I want to talk about anger here. Um, and let's, let's uh, even identify, so I want, just for a second, I want to take the scripture and I want to lay across the scripture modern science or modern psychology. So modern psychology would say that anger is a secondary emotion. Okay. It is not a primary emotion. But clearly, Paul is angry. So let's just pause for just a second and go, okay, what could be going on inside of Paul, deep inside of Paul? Because Paul is this, like, on one hand, he's black and white. He is so strong. He's like, blah, 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 and he is so driven. But I would propose to you that deep underneath that is this huge tenderness before the Lord Jesus and this huge tenderness to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. And when he was at his sickest and he was perhaps even on his deathbed in Pamphylia, who rejected him? John Mark. John Mark. So is it at least possible that what erupts from Paul is not just a cultural eruption, but rather this deep-seated emotion of feeling rejected, left, abandoned, um, pushed to the curb. Now, let's open this a whole other step further. The Apostle Paul comes to Christ Jesus radically, and he's rejected by his Pharisee group. I can't prove it fully in Scripture, but we've got these 10 silent years where Paul goes back to um, Tarsus, and it's highly likely that Paul went back to Tarsus and he sewed tents for a decade. Nothing is said about it. And during that time, he probably expected that he would share with his mother and his father, and they would convert to Jesus. It probably he would have either been married or betrothed to be married because he couldn't have been a Pharisee without that. He may have even had a child. And it's possible that he thought they would have given their hearts and lives to Christ Jesus. And it's possible that they, it doesn't say anything in scripture. So that's an indicator that almost assuredly Paul was rejected by his biological family. So is it possible that deep inside Paul is this wound sort of lingering now? So when someone uh, rejects him, he's like, wow, this big flare-up. You follow what I'm saying? Do you ever do that? I mean, there's times in our marriage where one of us will do something, and, and we'll, one of us will look at the other one and go, well, this is definitely not like present active. Like this is dredging up something from 
the past. And that's fair. God works that way. The Holy Spirit works that way. There's traumatic responses in the moment that link to the past. And we've got to really, um, a lot of us try to just get rid of our anger um, or our negative response. But I think a better response is to curiously follow the thread of your anger to the, as a secondary emotion to the primary emotion. What's going on deep inside of you? What's the hurt or the rejection or the shame that is going on underneath there? So, I would suggest then, when it comes to anger, I'm going to open this up a step further, um, you are either going to deny that it's there, unknowingly either becoming passive-aggressive or aggressive. So anger is a secondary emotion. Paul's anger, secondary emotion. When it comes up, you're either going to deny that it's there, and in denying it, you're going to either become passive-aggressive or aggressive. Paul became aggressive. Yeah. Okay, secondly, um, you're going to blame, you could blame others and feel trapped in your own anger cycle. I'd, I would define that as like victim thinking. And, and let me just cut a, a clean line here. There are situations in your life and mine where we have been a victim. In other words, 19-year-old Michael as a kid at UNCW ends up in a cult. What was I? But there's, I was a victim. But there's a huge difference between Michael was a victim and Michael is presently active living as a victim. You may have been abused. You may have been even sexually violated. There, you may have experienced any number of things. You may have been a victim, but you don't have to active, present, live in or under this um, identity of a victim. You hear me? God calls us to move in and through those things. And God even says, don't worry about what's, what people can do to the body. I'm not diminishing the pain there. But I'm saying, uh, worry more about the one who can impact and negatively affect your heart, your soul, your spirit. <clears throat> okay, so you can deny that it's there, becoming passive or aggressive. You can blame others and sort of feel trapped in your own anger cycle. Um, or thirdly, you can courageously acknowledge and follow the string of the secondary emotion to discover the core issues. Okay, let's keep going. Some of y'all are like, oh man, he's meddling. I am. I believe that is the most healthy approach, and I think that's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, when he says, in your anger, sin not. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So it would seem, now I also want to propose something here, it would seem that it is biblical that you can be angry and not sin. So a lot of people spend all our time just trying to get rid of this secondary emotion of anger. Oh, I feel some anger, so I need to like deny it. All right, so let's open this door. When we deny um, anger is in our heart, or you might even acknowledge it and feel trapped in your own anger, you're going to become passive um, or aggressive. Um, so what I want to call us to, and I think Paul eventually goes through this in, in, the, um, in the rest of the book of Acts and in the epistles that he writes, but I think we're called to move through both passive or um, aggressive anger to upgrading that to like proactive or assertive or healthy sort of anger as we move in and through it. I think that's what Paul means when he says, be angry and sin not. Okay. So... Um, modern psychology would use like a, um, uh, have you ever seen like the iceberg analogy of anger? Might have seen that. It's like a little, you know, a big triangle and you have the ocean up here and this little tiny top of the icebergs up here and they have anger. And then down underwater you have, I feel ashamed, um, I feel hurt, I feel rejected, I feel violated, um, I feel abused, any number of things that you have. And all of that is sort of the core or, or root issues going on deep inside your heart. But what presents is anger. 
Okay, so that, that's kind of the same idea. You might feel trapped, offended, disrespected, under pressure, um, and, and if the, any of those feelings are intense enough, you could even think that they are anger. <clears throat> I, I knew somebody that would go, well, I'm, I'm just angry, I can't help it. And I would go, yeah, that's true, but there is a God who can. You can take it to him. Okay, so let's open this just a second. Aggressive anger, um, which is the way I would characterize Paul here. Um, and uh, then we're going to talk about passive anger and then proactive or assertive anger. So aggressive anger um, is expressed uh, in this way, and it's directed at the other person um, really to hurt him or her emotionally, physically, or psychologically. So did Paul probably demonstrate that? I'd suggest so. Can't prove it, but I'd suggest so. Yelling, verbal put-downs, physical, getting physical, all those are examples of aggressive anger. Now, passive anger. Now, I would propose that Barnabas is living in some passive anger. Even the way it says um, they parted a company, period, it's the end of verse 39. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. I mean, it's just like, boom, you get the idea. Well, I'm taking my bags and leaving then. You know, it's, it's, more, of a, it's more of a passive um, anger. So passive anger, a person is going to internalize the expression of anger. They're going to avoid dealing with the situation that contributed to those feelings. Um, and that anger can even get expressed by holding a grudge, um, by being mean, um, by spreading nasty rumors, by not speaking to a person, by avoiding a person, um, or by damaging something of theirs. I mean, you know, it's like uh, what, there's an old country song about like she takes a bat to his car, you know. I mean, that, that's, that's not, it's indirect anger, right? It's, it's more passive because it wasn't directly to the person. So anyway, there you go. So aggressive anger, um, Paul demonstrates it. I would say sinful. Passive anger, I think Barnabas demonstrates it. I'd also say sinful. Now, how do we move? How do we be angry then and sin not? How do we, how do we practice um, proactive anger, spirit-led assertive anger, or be angry and do not sin? And I would say this is the best way to communicate feelings of anger because anger is expressed directly and in a calm, non-threatening way to the other person. Statements, if you don't have this in your tool belt, you need it here. Statements like, I feel hurt or I'm tempted to feel angry when. So you're not blaming them, but you're helping them understand how you feel. And sometimes I'll even say to Abby, look, I'm not even sure I'm right, but like the story in my head is blah, 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 blah. You know, like you didn't do this thing and I was thinking you should do this thing and you didn't do this thing and hurt my feelings. And I I mean, you hear what I'm saying? That's the way this works. So then we have this story in our head, and then if we're not careful and we don't go to Abby and talk to her, then all of a sudden, oh, Abby's out to get me, and Abby doesn't love me, and then I'm just, like, going further and further. You, you hear me? Like, I'm being a little dramatic, but we do this, people. We do it in the church. We do it in our marriages. We do it with our families. We do it with our neighbors. We do it with people at work. So, you know, instead of going to them, Matthew 18, read that if you like, talking to them, being honest, even being vulnerable, all that is um, examples of very healthy anger. Um, <clears throat> when this happened, um, I felt, when you did, I felt rejected. All that is like, that's good, healthy, um, like, like well-defined you sort of um, interactions. Yeah? All right. So you have and we have a God-given biblical responsibility to guard our own boundaries. Now, let me say with great clarity, you have a biblical responsibility to respect other humans. Um, but biblically, you do not necessarily have to agree with or approve of all of their words or behavior. This is like the idea of unity versus uniformity. A cult is 
uniformity. Everybody dresses the same, looks the same, acts the same, does all this. You know, unity is unity within diversity. I mean, I love the old um, church father quote that went, um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, whether or not they took John Mark, is that a biblical essential? No, it is a non-essential. It is a difference of opinion. What you believe about the rapture or women in leadership or how you vote or you know, your political affiliation, those are non-essentials. And one of the things that becomes very risky is when Christians make non-essentials essentials and they demand strict and rigorous reliance and uniformity in their way of thinking. You hear me? So Christ always brings and gives freedom, and we are called always not to align with a, a church's necessarily way of thinking or theology or a political way of thinking or a social uh, way of thinking, but rather we are called to align with the larger kingdom of heaven, and in that sense there is great freedom, and with great freedom can come great unity. But we live in a day and age, even in corporate America, where much of what we've done is demand uniformity. So we have like um, manipulated and cajoled, if you will, for strict compliance. You know, people, I'm not throwing um, IBM under the bus. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I remember people and I've read articles about, well, I worked at IBM and I drank the Kool-Aid. You ever heard that? It's that type, it's like uniformity, and I don't, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that. If you have an affinity towards them, I, I, have, I don't really know. I've just read a few articles. But here's the point, is there is a danger line when you can't live in harmony with a spouse, a neighbor, a friend, a church member, and can't disagree on some things. You hear me? That's healthy. It's adult. It's independent. And as long as we agree on the essentials, then let's give a lot of freedom on non-essentials. Amen? Okay. So, little warning here. If you are in a relationship, a marriage, a friendship, a neighbor relationship, it doesn't matter. If you're in any relationship and you're not allowed to respectfully disagree with someone over something that is a non-essential, that other person has a control problem. Do I need to say that again? Okay. Okay. If you're in any type of relationship and you're not allowed to disagree respectfully with something that is a non-essential, then the other person has a control problem. In other words, what's an essential? Uh, In a marriage, I think an essential is that two people both give their hearts and lives to Jesus. But if you come to Jesus and your spouse doesn't, you can't change them. You can't. You can love them. You can serve them. You can pray for them. You can, get, you can do all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to just open hands and trust the Lord Jesus with them. Okay, let's keep going here. A um, couple God uh, perspectives on um, Acts 15, on human anger and human disagreement, and then a couple takeaways for us today, and then we're going to have communion. So a couple uh, God perspectives on um, Acts 15. God got two traveling evangelism teams instead of one. Come on. That's kingdom. That's kingdom. That's good news. Somebody say amen. amen. So if you've got church hurt and that split ended up in two churches, we'll go, praise God. There's more opportunities for people to be reached for the kingdom. Like stop having limited sight and lift your vision higher. Okay. 
Second thing, um, God uses this instant in Paul's life to sift him, to convict him, and to chisel his theology through immense personal failure. And the redemption of God is always impeccable regardless of human sin and failure. I love that the gospel doesn't depend on me. Come on, that's good. All right. Uh, Third thing, um, God was glorified in New Testament writings because of Paul and his failure with Barnabas. That's the redemption of God. Fourth thing, in the end, John, Mark, and Paul became close friends. I love this. It breaks my heart that Barnabas never did. I don't know what happened with Barnabas. He sails off the pages of Scripture. We never hear from him again. But John Mark becomes a true brother of Paul. Colossians 4.10, Paul writes, Mark, meaning John Mark, sends his greetings. 2 Timothy 4.11, he asks, Paul's at the end of his race, he's about to die, and he is, he is entreating Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you to me, for he is of great help to me. Like, he loves John Mark at the end. Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Paul's writing, and he says, Mark sends his greetings. So when Paul says, Mark sends his greetings, who's with Paul? John Mark. I mean, you you hear what I'm saying? Like, Paul and John Mark become um, brothers in the mission at the end. It's really, really beautiful. Fifth thing, the larger the church uh, grows... Oh, oh, the larger church, as the larger church grows and expands, the kingdom is bigger than your failure or mine. And in the kingdom economy, God works in and through your sin and mine to accomplish his kingdom will and way. Now, let's not, like, exacerbate or make any situations worse than they need to be. Amen? Come on. We don't need to, like, throw gas on the fire. All right? But let's recognize that God will work sovereignly, his kingdom will and way, in and through whatever brokenness, whatever disagreement, whatever anger, whatever's happening, if you will try and walk through it. All right, a couple of takeaways for us today. So just some applications. I would call us as a church to take our passive anger and our aggressive anger by the power of the cross and move it into a more proactive or assertive anger where you're able to share vulnerably and honestly. Stop dealing with the secondary emotion and curiously follow the thread of what's going on deeper inside your heart underneath the iceberg, if you will. Get a counselor if you need to. I go see a counselor periodically and go, I need some help. Your marriage might need that. You might need that as an individual. Sit with a friend. Talk to somebody. But upgrade your passive anger or your aggressive anger. Second thing, recognize this side of eternity. Disagreements are always going to happen. They're always going to exist. Church splits are going to happen. People are going to go sideways. Once we get into eternity, guess what? It won't happen anymore. One day. Number three, recognize in any situation it's less about who's right. This is so important, church. Recognize it's less about who's right and who's wrong. Rather, the kingdom perspective is this eternal perspective that stands outside of time, and God is more concerned that Jesus would be formed in you and in me or in you and whoever you're in a fuss with than who's right and who's wrong. He's more interested in the formation of Jesus within you that you would learn to practice the presence of God, listening to him, abiding in him, resting in him, walking with him in a relational way than he is with who's right and who's wrong and your little human fuss. I'm telling you, that doesn't mean he's not compassionate with where you are. It just means he's saying, upgrade my daughter, upgrade my son, upgrade out of that mess, think bigger, think kingdom. 
Number four, differences don't have to destroy mutual respect and relationship. So long as you don't burn down the bridge. What did Paul and Barnabas appear to do? Burn down the bridge. Number five, I would say remember that this earth journey is all about training for eternity. It's not about here. And if you're new to the faith or you're, you're not a Jesus person, if you're a seeker or a doubter or whatever you are, you may be like, what? I'm telling you, we will be in eternity or we will be in eternity in the presence of Jesus for eternity. Like our short 70, 80, 90 years here are like nothing. You hear me? This is all about earth training for eternity where we're going to co-rule and co-reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be so good. So all that you do here in and through the power of Christ will echo through eternity. All that you do here in and through the power of your own strength will be burnt up at the judgment seat of Christ, which just calls us to surrender more quickly, submit more fully, ask the Lord to use us and change us and transform us more completely. Yeah? So make sure to upgrade your hurt, your frustration, your disappointment, your rejection, your shame, your anger, and view all of life situations through the lens of eternity. <sighs> Let's celebrate communion. We celebrate communion here once a month. And technically, the communion table is open to anyone. Um, Scripturally, communion is for those who are in the fellowship of believers. So it means that if you've surrendered your life to Christ Jesus, if he's the Lord of your life, then this communion table is open for you. If you're anywhere in your Jesus journey, this communion table is open for you. If you're here and you've never surrendered your life to him, I'd encourage you to come and pray with one of us. Our, our prayer team will be up here. I'd love to pray with you. Give your life to him. And communion is a recognition of what King Jesus did on the cross. Okay? So... I'm going to read if I can find it if I can't find it I won't read it <laughs> okay this is the Apostle Paul writing 1 Corinthians 11 I'm going to just read this. I'm going to let up the words stand on their own, and then I'm going to break the bread and pour the juice. For what I received from the Lord Jesus, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the Lord's resurrection, and the Lord's ascension until he comes.
Holy Father, would you take these common elements, bread and juice, and Father, would you set them apart for your kingdom, your will, and your way. Father, as we celebrate communion today, I pray that our congregation, our church, our family would not approach this table under the pressure or the weight of what they failed to do or what they've done. But Father, rather, I pray that we could approach this table recognizing what you have done, what you have accomplished, the finished work of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that they could find grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Holy Spirit, we welcome your conviction in our hearts where we've knowingly or unknowingly participated in anger or hurt. Father, if there's anyone in the room that's never given their life to you, I pray that you would open that door and they would give their life, surrender their life to you for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's what we're going to do in just a minute. Don and or Scott are going to dismiss you guys um, by row, and you're all everybody's going to exit your row this way. So this section, you're going to come up here to David and Monica, and in this section, you're going to exit out here, um, and Haley's going to direct you down here to our two stations. And then if you're over here, maybe Roger's going to direct you, but you're going to come down to the front to Tony and Christine, and then uh, enter back in and, and to your seat right there. Um, this is about the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you'll hold the elements, I'll pray one more time at the end and we'll take them together.
take these common elements that we're holding as a church family this morning. And Father, would you set them apart? And Father, as we take them, we remember what you did. In Jesus' name, amen. Take, eat, and drink. Father, as we leave this place today, may we be more acquainted with your person. May we be more aware of your presence. May we be more filled with your spirit. May we be more aware of the gifts that you've planted inside of us and the fruit of the spirit that you long to cultivate within us. May we have the courage to walk through the woundedness of our own past find freedom, freeness indeed in Christ. 
Father, would you bless each family, each person, every child, everybody represented in this building. Father, would you fill us with your kingdom, your will, and your way. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. If you need special prayer, we'll have a prayer team down here. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. That's it. Thank you for listening today and being part of the Saltbox online community. If we can pray for you in any way, please leave us a comment below or connect with us through saltboxchurch.com. Remember, just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.